First on film and entertainment, Gregory King, Peter Krause, and yours truly, Alex First, here for another week of baiting. Is that what it is, Peter? We get recalcitrance here that you're like your good self. We've got to put you in your place. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. And Gregory, pun central. Dad jokes, grandfather jokes, great-grandfather jokes. That's what you were noted for, correct? I would told these jokes by Methuselah, so, you know, just pass them on. Well, hang on. Methuselah, Peter, you would have known Methuselah. I met him. I, we had a great discussion about Mozart. You've been there for thousands of years. You're like the old oak tree. It never gives way. That, that's what I love about it. Now, I, I want to I sort of get your mind work, both of your minds working here. And I, this is a question without notice, Greg. I want you to go back in time, all right? And Peter as well. You're far. Uh, well, you're lying back on a couch and I'm your psychiatrist and I'm asking you to project back to when you were 17, now, can you tell me anything about when you were 17? What did you dress like? Were you dorking? Were you, you know, mean? Were you, what What? What was it, you know, was this your last year of school? What was 17? Tell me about it. It wasn't my last year of school. It was? So you finished yes. 17? Okay. Yep. Which, which school did you go to, Peter? Melbourne High. Mm-hmm. But do you, did you live in the area or was it a long hike to get there? No, I, I mean, I live in St Kilda, so it wasn't a long hike. Mm -hmm. Okay, Greg, what about you? Which school? Uh, I, I went to Alexandra High School in secondary school back in, in the country. Alex, in, a, in a town called Alex? Alexandra, yes. Yeah, in fact, <laughs> no, no, I remember visiting and I, I thought it was quite funny given my surname's Alexander, so there you go. Uh, so, but what else do you remember about your childhood, both of you? When I say childhood, when you were 17, anything that stands out? The clothing that you were wearing or? No, a lot. School uniform, mainly. Lady mm. stuff on the weekend. That was about it. Yeah, Peter? Yeah, no, again, school uniform. It was fairly mundane uh, being in the uh, last year of school at Melbourne High. Okay, so what about the last day of school? Do you, do you actually recall whether there was a sense of relief or beginning the next chapter, either of you? Uh, it, it just seemed like a normal uh, final day. It, it didn't stand out. Really? And and sort of final exams, there wasn't a sense of relief or anything like that? Mm, yeah, sort of, but uh, no, it, it was all fairly smooth sailing, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And Greg, were you 17 or 18 or how old were you when you finished school? Um, just trying to work it out. So, um it must be made around the same time as me. Um, 70... I, I finished in 75. Uh, I was about 17, 18, 17, yeah. Yeah, you finished in 75 as well? Yep. Yeah, same thing. So, and then I went to university starting in 76. Yeah, likewise. So, okay, the reason I'm asking this is that the season has kicked off for Melbourne Theatre Company and the first play of the year is called 17. It's on at South Bank Theatre, the Sumner. And opening night was Friday night. And I suppose I posed the question for, for a reason. Do you remember what your last day of school was like? You just finished your final exams. Freedom was there for the taking. The future was uncertain, but it was one of possibilities. And regardless, now was party time. Now, they are the thoughts in the minds of the 17-year-olds at the centre of Matthew Wittet's heartfelt play named Seventeen. Here is the twist, fellas, and I'm wondering whether you think this in principle can work. Okay, 
17-year-olds being played by 60- and 70-year-olds? Yes or no as a concept? Greg? Before uh, probably, not. probably not. Peter? Uh, it's all about the acting, I suppose. It, it may work. Mm. Well, events take place in a playground where five school leavers have gathered to chill and drink, and they're joined by the 14-year-old sister of one of them. And during the course of the 100 minutes that they are on stage, they hang out and they muck around. More than that, their apprehensions, fears, and vulnerabilities are exposed. So that's the concept. And you've got a character called Mike, played by Richard Piper. He's the alpha male in the group. He's loud, he's confident, he's belligerent. His best mate since the first day of fifth grade is Tom, played by Robert Menzies. And he's book smart, but relatively timid. He's due to leave for Adelaide with his folks in two days because his dad has secured a new job there. Mike's sister, Lizzie, Fiona Choi, is the 14-year-old, and she's wise beyond her years. She can see that beneath his gregarious exterior, her brother is not happy. Mike is set to go to work for their father. His girlfriend, Jess, Pamela Rabe, is struggling with her alcoholic and needy mother, and Jess is not sure whether she wants to go to university, but she would like to travel. Her best friend, Amelia, Genevieve Pika, regularly suffers nosebleeds and has her own issues. And then there's the outsider, Ronnie, George Sevskov, who is known as a weird, weird, bit of a weirdo. Hiding a dark secret, he wants to be part of the celebrations. Now, truth be told, this moment in time, the next few hours that the six spend together, will never be replicated. This is their chance to reveal their innermost feelings and wait for dawn to break in the playground. It's filled with humour and surprises. 17 develops poignancy as it progresses. And it's that evocation, that sort of evocative transition that elevates this work. Now, having said that, seeing adults of a certain age dress up and act out as school leavers, often swearing like troopers, is hilarious. There isn't a weak link. The actors positively shine in their respective roles, each with distinctive characterizations, from loudmouth to angst-riddled. Ronnie's movements early days are perplexing, just as they are meant to be, but George Shevstov ensures that Ronnie comes into his own as the narrative unfolds. This full playground set, I mean, it's really good, with tan bark, brings back fond memories. It's a really fine endeavour from Christina Smith, who's also responsible for costuming. And that too has immediate impact. If I put that in another way, the introduction of the year 12s is not easily forgotten. Now, there are other elements that are memorable here. Shaking Booty being one of them, and a game of truth or dare. The director's match, Ed, Matt Edgerton, he plays up the light and shade in the script, and that gives 17 emotional resonance. So it's on at South Bank Theatre, the Sumner. I, I believe it started in Sydney in about 2016, then was played in London, and now we've got our iteration in Melbourne. It's a really interesting work, and it's a very clever device because, you know, but you don't really expect... I, I, I mean, I, I, don't, I haven't looked up the exact age of the cast, but I'm, I'm gathering that we're talking 60... 
70, 60 and 70 year olds, although one of the cast members, the 14 year old, is younger. So I hope I haven't a aged anybody unnecessarily, but it's a really fascinating way of getting the point at, point across. And I think it works very, very well. So, mm, I mean, I, I I reckon this could actually do well on, on film, Peter. I actually do. I think this could work very well on film. So maybe maybe there's something in it for a person like yourself who, how many how many centuries old are you? Um, uh, uh, dozen and counting. <laughs> at, at, at the very least, because you knew, you just admitted you knew Methuselah. So, Greg, what do you reckon? A film out of something like this? I don't know. It depends, again, it comes down to how it works on screen. Stage and screen are often different. Um, yeah, that's true. So, well, it uh, uh, may not work on screen. Peter, do you see much National Theatre Live or not at, at Nova? Uh, I do see as, as many of the releases as possible, yes. But, I mean, it's, it's fascinating because I, whilst I like it, there's something about the, the actual being in the theatre, and I've had the good fortune. Have you been to London and, and seen National Theatre Live live, so to speak? No. It is fantastic. I mean, just extraordinary. I, I, saw, I think I've seen three productions there, and wow. As good as it is on film, it's not the same. I mean, I, because you never know from night to night whether an actor has a bad night or misses a few lines here or there. there there's something, it's kind of like seeing sport live as well. They're, as good as it is on TV and you see more of it because they can sort of use, you know, close-ups, et cetera, et cetera. The atmosphere is not the same as when you're in a theatre. So, yeah, I, anyway, it's it, I really liked it. And uh, it is on until the 17th of February. Southbank Theatre, the Sumner, and it's called 17, with very good reason. So, on Jair, 88FM, if you want to become a member, go to j-air.com.au. We love our members. We love people anyway who listen to the programming 24 hours a day. You've got some chatter, and you've got some music, and lots of good stuff. So, um, yeah, I think it's about 54 bucks a year if you want to become a member of Jair. Again, 88FM. Now, I want to catch up on a few... We sort of started last week by talking about the year's releases, those films that have been put out in 2024. And I wanted to begin with a an actioner called The Beekeeper, which is MA rated, 105 minutes, quite a wild ride. It's ultra-violent, over-the-top nonsense, really. But I, I reckon the way I, I approach this is it wasn't previewed by the company concerned that put it out. I saw it as a bit of a guilty pleasure. Having said that, some of the dialogue is horrendous. I mean, the scene that sets in train the plot is wooden in the extreme. I, I, I put it to you this way, plausibility is never in question because plausibility simply doesn't exist. And yet the choreographed action with my, one man taking on the FBI, the Secret Service and, and more and leaving them impotent, I found mighty impressive. And that man is Adam Clay, played by Jason Statham who does this sort of role very well. And he's a, a really diligent beekeeper, actually a beekeeper. He also happens to be a retired operative for a shadowy off-the-books organisation that operates outside the law. And people like him are known as beekeepers because their job is to keep the hive of government functioning and the nation safe. Clay now leads a quiet life tending to his honeybees. He occupies the barn of an isolated property owned by ageing Eloise Parker, 
Felicia Richard plays that role. She's the director of a charity with no knowledge of IT security. When her computer's hacked, she falls prey to a ruthless scam involving data skimming, which rids the charity of its money and her, Eloise Parker, of her life's savings. Her downfall brings into play her distanced FBI agent daughter Verona, Emma Raver Lampman, and fellow agent Matt Wiley, Bobby Naderi. But they're always one step behind Clay, who comes out of retirement to exact revenge on those that fleeced Eloise Parker. That involves blowing up a call centre that targets the elderly and working his way up the food chain to cut off the head of the snake. Among those standing in his way, a former CIA director, Wallace Westwild, played by Jeremy Irons, and a 28-year-old bad boy, Derek Danforth, Josh Hutchison. There's also a further twist in store late in this movie. Still, you can't say that Clay is anything but driven. The script is by Kurt Wimmer, who did Point Break, direction from David Ayer's Suicide Squad. One tone Jason Statham, well, hardly sets the world on fire in the acting stakes, but he sure can kick butt. Emma Raver Lampman displays get up and go as the FBI agent with skin in the game. And there's also some droll humour involved in Verona's interplay with her partner, which Bobby Naderi handles well. Josh Hutchison isn't stretched in playing this arrogant, entitled Pratt. His role is to repel the audience from his first frame which he does manage to do quite readily. There's elegance about Jeremy Irons as the ex-CIA chief caught out of his depth, and I also appreciated Gabrielle Bernstein, his evocative cinematography. He did Black Widow just out of interest. And, and it doesn't matter whether it's the solitude of beekeeping or the mayhem that ensues in this work. I thought that Gabrielle Bernstein did a very good job. It's undoubtedly a good-looking turkey. Not a turkey, but a good-looking picture. Look, I did cringe at much of the scripting, but I still found myself strangely invested in the journey. So that leaves the movie as a showy mixed bag called The Beekeeper, MA-rated 105 minutes. What do you reckon, Peter? I was not impressed by this film at all. Uh, And and the reason was the muddled scripting. Uh, As you have described the plot, you make it sound more coherent than it actually is because uh, the film deals with a number of issues and doesn't deal with them effectively at all. Is it to do with um, uh, a candidate's political uh, um, aim to succeed and uh, understanding that she's been funded by these scammers? Is it about people being scammed? Uh, and how this can be uh, a, a real um, difficulty for so many people. Um, is it about um, uh, any other conspiracies about the FBI or about any agencies and who's to blame? All of that is muddled up in, in a very confusing and uh, unworthy screenplay. And it, it was played reasonably well by Jason Statham, who's very good at being a stone-faced, um, violent action character, uh, although he's certainly no John Wick. And in fact, the film is nothing like John Wick, even though it pretends that it wants to be. Uh, I'm glad to say that no bees were harmed in the making of this film, um, but I think the audience might be. I was not impressed. Oh, I, I must admit, I, I'm sorry, I didn't find that complexity there. I, I, I understand where you're coming from, but I did. You know, I just took it for what it was. What about you, Greg? 
Uh, can we call this a B movie? Yeah, we, I think it is a B movie. Very good, oh. but I, I, I think it is, but it's not a terrible movie. Well, I actually, like you, Alice, I found a little bit of um, guilty pleasure there, and it's always good to see Jason Statham kicking butt. He's one of the more believable of those action heroes going around at the moment. He's still young enough to get away with being convincing there. Um, the plot, as you said, is a bit of nonsense and everything, but just some of the um, key action sequences here um, were very well staged by David Ayres there. Jason Statham scowls and growls and grunts his way through a uh, formulated role there. But I, I liked it up to a point there. It is a bit ridiculous by the end. But I bought into it and I was willing to go along for the ride while it was on screen. Once you walk out, it's eminently forgettable. But, yeah, no, I, I quite enjoyed this, Alex. Mm, good stuff. So what what would you give it out of 10, the beekeeper? I'd give it a 6 out of 10 easily. Mm, yeah, and I'm giving it a 6 out of 10. Peter, you're going to fail it, are you? You're going to be nasty to begin with, yes? Of course, I always am. Oh, no, <laughs> no, this is just the trend. <laughs> yes, go on. What are you giving oh, right. I, I was just going to say it's a triumph of bloodshed over writing. Uh, and so I can only muster four out of ten. Yes. Jason Statham be rocking up with a, a jar of honey. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, would would, uh, would your sweet, sweet tooth be satiated if Jason knocked on your door? I'd have to get Keanu Reeves to support me. Oh, I see. All right. Yeah, yeah, 88 FM, you're listening to Nonsense from Peter Krause. No, you're listening to Peter Krause. You're listening to Greg King and Alex first. Now, uh, would you like us a, a night swim, Peter? Can I push you in? No. <laughs> no. That's, that's, that's a bad that's joke, actually, because someone that's, was pushed in. Yeah, that's yeah. a very bad joke, actually. I didn't mean <laughs> um, Nick, I just realised what I said. I apologise. Um and, uh, uh, yeah, it was terrible during the week. Actually, that the elderly man who was uh, yeah off the pier. Uh, that was you know that was terrible. Look, um, Night Swim's the name of the movie. It's M rated. It's ninety eight minutes, and this backyard pool all but becomes a living, breathing entity. It's a horror film, right? So the malevolent force does its worst early on before we settle into the main storyline, which loops back to what happened at the start. The appearance of a toy boat seemingly operating on its own in the water in the dead of night marks the portent of doom. We're talking summer 1992. Not long thereafter, a young girl named Rebecca, played by Azayan Dalabayeva, is dead, having drowned. Summer 1992. And then we cut to the present day. Family of four about to move into the house where that incident took place, oblivious to its history. Father Ray Waller, Wyatt Russell, a former pro baseballer, walks with a stick because he's been diagnosed with MS. It's been tough for him and his family. As the kids were growing up, they were constantly moving as he changed teams, and now he's facing this major health battle. His doctor says water therapy could help. When they take possession of the property, the pool is in a state of disrepair, but he and the family are up for the challenge. Soon enough, the crystal clear water is enticing. Ray's improvement, marked and significant. The same time his wife Eve, Kerry Condon, son Elliot, Gavin Warren, and daughter Izzy, Emily Fairley, are spooked. And when they enter the pool alone, each of them is easy prey. They see disturbing images. They're, they're set upon. 
everyday life becomes a constant battle as evil consumes Ray, the father. It's based on a short film by Rod Blackhurst and Bryce Maguire, and Maguire has written the screenplay and also directs. I found it genuinely spooky and intriguing until the third act, when it goes over the top. I was invested in the plot and in the family looking to start a new life. Kerry Condon, compelling as the mother looking for stability. Wyatt Russell's uncertainty and ungainliness are understandable. The sibling dynamic is familiar. So all the ingredients are in place, and then the jump scares happen, slowly but surely. All good to this point. While there are twists along the way, the narrative takes a wild bend after Eve takes matters into her own hands. And that's when the filmmakers decided to throw the kitchen sink at night swim, and it all becomes preposterous. More restraint could have maintained the level of credibility that had marked the film to that juncture, but that's not how it plays out. Still, I might think twice before next dipping my toes into a backyard pool, or any body of water for that matter, Greg. What do you reckon? Night swim. Uh, this is the Amityville horror in a swimming pool, basically. Um, and beside, despite um, an intriguing premise, I thought ultimately became a little too derivative there. Some jump scares early on there, but the longer it goes on, I thought the more silly and ridiculous it got. I thought the performances from people like Raya Russell and Kerry Condon were particularly good. They're showing strength and determination there. Uh, this is actually based on a short film from 2014. Uh, the film only went for about five minutes, um, I th- in which a woman was threatened by terrorised by a swimming pool. But uh, he's stretching the material out to uh, 99 minutes or something. It seems to lose some of its immediacy, immediacy and some of its impact there. I also thought Charlie Sarah's underwater cinematography was actually quite suitably moody and unsettling and created a certain mood. And it's obviously that the director, Bryce McGuire, has been influenced by films like Poltergeist and Jaws, and he plays on, effectively on our childhood fears of the unknown, the water, all that kind of stuff there. Um, so, yeah, look, as adds more levels of characterisation and emotional involvement to the short film and plenty of jump scares, but as I said, it's creepy to start with, but I thought by the end it was cliched and predictable. Now, Peter, do you think we can get you into a swimming pool at night naked? Uh, Alex, what are you proposing? For no, goodness I, sake. I, this this I, is taking a downturn. The, 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 <laughs> this, this, the, the reason I say this is, you know, any ugliness that you might see in the movie could be supplanted by you plunging into this pool. Oh, the horror, the horror. The horror, exactly. <laughs> we have to save our audience. This is what I'm saying. We love you dearly, but that 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 concept, that conceit, is just way. It's it's taking a dive off the deep end, Peter. Is it not? Oh, not only that, but you've submerged yourself into a real horror show here. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm looking at bubbles here. So, did you think more of this piece of um, film than I did, or or Peter, or Greg did, or not? Uh, I thought it was. uh, what I call an average horror film. It's one of the yeah. Boomhouse, James Wan. Yeah, I didn't think uh, it was bad. I didn't think it was terrible. It, it, I, I actually, there are elements there. I mean, I, I think Greg and I are similar in this regard. It, it became preposterous. Yes, and that's when the backstory is revealed later in the film, and it and it just sounded too ridiculous for words, uh, I have to say. And But, yes, the general premise of the film starts off 
quite well, but uh, sort of deteriorates as it goes on. This whole notion of the evil lurking under the swimming pool is just a little bit uh, too ridiculous for words, I have to say. And knowing that uh, there is Australian production behind this film and Australian special effects, um, I thought the in-joke in the film was quite amusing, uh, even if no one else noticed it. Um, you may have seen uh, in the film the name of the middle school um, that the uh, the child attends, and we see that uh, twice in the film. I can't uh, recall. I cannot recall, but we don't want to spoil. We don't want spoilers, do we? So we can. Well, it's not a spoiler. It, it's because people won't notice it, um, uh, apart from some Australians in the audience, especially those who remember uh drowning and a, a prime minister oh, drowned. yes yeah okay harold holt yes little yeah. school yeah again i but uh, did you oh, did, Sydney, did, I, I did decide it I, didn't you name their um one their big swing pools after ian thorpe and olympic champion we name ours after a prime minister who drowned yeah but I, I don't know i found it i understand you know is that named after that pool in um in Malvern, but i i didn't find it terribly amusing to be honest I, I i found it a bit icky i did i, I don't know I, I couldn't help feeling a bit icky it, it brought it back in a in a not in a in a good way for me peter honestly i understand that and and i thought that was the in joke in in the film yeah. that uh his drowning that uh, shouldn't have happened or whatever anyway um so apart from that uh the film is so so uh, an adequate uh, B horror movie, uh, not like the Beekeeper. Um, so it's it's uh, it's worth worth seeing uh, when it uh, eventually ends up on streaming. <laughs> okay. Well, I, I mean, I think I'll I'll probably go a bit higher than you guys. I'm not. I'm giving it six and a half. Night swim. What about you, Peter? I gave it five out of ten. And Greg, I gave it six out of ten as well. Okay. Yeah. There we go. So. Yeah, well, we've, we've all passed it. Let's put it that way. Let's talk a little bit about Mean Girls, which, well, there was a, the cult film came out in, well, 20 years ago. It's hard to believe. But um, pardon me, this time it's back as a movie musical. It's PG rated. It's 112 minutes. The star of the original, Lindsay Lohan, is given a small role in this one. And look, I, I'd say this, like the original, it's actually fun. And it's written by Tina Fey, music by her husband, Jeff Richard. The The tale of adolescent angst is based on their stage musical, which opened on Broadway in 2018. Fey also wrote the original film, which was based on Rosalind Wiseman's 2002 non-fiction book, Queen Bees and Wannabes. A lot of bees in today's program, I might say. In the movie musical, this one that we're talking about, Faye also reprises her role as a teacher. So the story concerns 16-year-old Caddy Heron, played by Angary Rice, who has been homeschooled in Kenya by her mother, a role filled by Jenna Fisher. They move back to the United States, and then Caddy's enrolled in North Shore High. She's academically gifted and, unfortunately, is immediately socially distanced by the other children. Coming to her rescue are a couple of outsiders, misfits, Janice and Damien. Janice, played by Ollie Cravalo, and Damien by Jack Jackwell Spivey, or Spivey. They school her on the different cliques that exist within the school. Now, here's your test. What what are some of the cliques? Greg, you can go for, go for it. Um, you've got the nerds, you've got the mathletes, um, 
you've got the student groups, you've got the plastics. Very good. You're doing very well. Yeah, I write down jocks, band freaks, burnouts, theatre nerds. Yeah, and uh, the most exclusive group, course, group, of course, is the plastics. And that group consists of conniving Queen Bee Regina George, played by Renee Rapp, and her minions, Gretchen Wieners, Bibi Wood, and Karen Shetty of Antica. And they've got a strict dress code. Now, unexpectedly, the over-the-top glamour girls take Caddy under their wing and they decide to make her over in true plastics style. That hits a pothole, though, when Caddy takes a shine to Regina George's hunky ex-boyfriend, Aaron Samuels, Christopher Brinney. Suddenly, the gloves are off. Caddy decides to give as good as she gets in what becomes a drag-down battle with Regina George. And in the process, she distances her only real friends and learns a valuable lesson. It's the feature film debut of the directors, Samantha Jane and Arturo Perez Jr. I, I think it's quite an auspicious one. They've taken a smart and updated script from Faye, reimagined for a new generation, incorporating smartphones and TikTok videos, and I reckon they've nailed it. Mean Girls Circuit 2024, it's energetic, it's engaging, lively score, I really enjoyed the music, woven effortlessly into the storyline. Angry Rice, well, she works away at Nice Girl Turn Tail when newfound popularity strikes her, and she makes Caddy her own. I loved Ollie Cravalo as Artsy Janice and Raquel Sprivy as Larger Than Life Damien. They are among the star turns in Mean Girls. Avon Ticker is a scene stealer. She's hilarious as the pouting Karen. Karen's are getting a bad name, let me tell you. And B.D. Wood also makes her mark as the less-than-confident Gretchen. Renee Rapp brings an edge to her portrayal of the manipulative Regina George. And with a hair toss here and another there, Christopher Brenny is comfortable in the skin of love interest Aaron Samuels. Thought Tina Fey, she's always assured she's again here. She's confident as Miss Norbury, Ms. Norbury, while Tim Meadows steps up again as he did in the first instalment as the principal, Principal Duval. John Hamm milks the role of sex educator coach Carr. So much to like and appreciate about the new Mean Girls. It's a film that clearly recognises its target audience, namely both those who appreciated the original and Gen Z, or Gen Z, as it's called in the United States. And I reckon it successfully made a beeline for it. That's what the filmmakers have done. In short, and this will mean something to those who know Mean Girls, it's fetch. What do you think, Greg? Uh, this is interesting film, I thought. Um, based on interesting is an interesting is not normally a, a forerunner to good. Ah, uh, uh, towards the female cliques of high school and the meanness there, uh, it's a, almost um, a remake of the original 2004 film with the song and dance numbers added in. Although I believe um, they cut out about half a dozen songs from the Sage production just to fit it fit in a running time of two hours there. The story remains the same. Well, I didn't mind Anne-Boy Rice from, as Katie there, but I didn't think she was as quite as strong or as memorable as Lindsay Lowen in the role there. I did like um, Renee Rapp, who played the same role in um, the Broadway production as Regina George, the leader of the classics there. I thought she was quite good there. Um, I, I did like those two outsiders, Janice and... Damien, I thought they were fun, and they served as our narrator by breaking the fourth wall frequently there. But I, 
unlike you, Alice, I thought the song songs were pretty bland and forgettable here. I'd oh. walk out the cinema humming even one number. The standout for me was the um Rousey and theme I'd rather be me, sung by Janice and the gym there. Um, Rice's portrayal of Katie seemed a bit too sweet and naive, and she lacked that sassy quality and edge that Lindsay Lowen brought to the role there. Rap had a commanding presence, I thought, and she imbued a monstrous Regina with an edge um, that veered between sickly sweet and icy cold, um, and Spivvy hammed it up nicely as the effeminate but gently natured Damien, I thought. Um, it's a lot of energy, delivers its core messages effectively, but but I don't know whether it will stand the test of time and be still fondly remembered um, in 20 years' time like the original. Mm. What are you, about you, Peter? D- did you sing along? <laughs> no, I didn't sing along. Look, I thought this was quite an effective uh, film version of this the stage musical, especially um, uh, well-directed by the two uh, directors involved who put a frenetic uh, tone to the way they direct this film, even uh, a sequence involving... Um, uh, phone, mobile phone uh, footage, uh, so to speak. It's, and look, uh, this is Heather's on steroids. It, uh, it's all about um, uh, young women and how they misbehave and treat each other and, uh, and bully and harass and so on. And although we've seen this in a number of other films, I think uh, this musicalization of the original film um, with some added uh, elements to it, I think works quite effectively. I think it it talks to its audience quite well, uh, its younger audience. And uh, I actually liked uh, a number of the songs because they were well integrated into the storyline and into the plot. So, look, I like Mean Girls. It's a, it's a pretty effective musical. Yeah, there we go. See, I like the music too. So what are we going to give it? I, I, I'm going to be, I reckon we, I'll be the high mark here. So, Greg, you start us off. Mean Girls. Um, I'll give it five out of ten. Wow. Peter. I actually gave it seven out of ten. And I gave it seven and a half out of ten. Am I the most generous of reviewers? What is it? I've had the top marks all the time, last couple of weeks. What's going on here? Now, guys, did we do the holdovers last week or not? No. So we should do it today. All right. So that's M-rated, 133 minutes. And wow, Paul Giamatti. Can he act? Oh, Paul Hunman, he plays, an adjunct professor of ancient history at an elite boarding institution. Now, here's your trivial pursuit question. What year did the institution date back to that he is Paul Paul Giamatti as Paul Hunman is the adjunct professor of? Any clues? Any ideas? Gregory? Well, you asked me this last week, Alex, and I said about 1789 or something. 1797. There we go. Well, Pete, you should have known that, Pete. You were around... You know, you, you, you're already old man at that stage, weren't you? I was there to see the architect's plans. Exactly. Now, talking about old school, that's what Paul Hunman is. Paul Giamatti. Yeah, old school. Uh, uh, he's got this tough love approach and he's determined to bring the best out of his students at Barton Academy in New England. Now, Barton Academy doesn't actually exist, but there you go. Now, that puts him at odds with pupils, with teachers, and with the school principal, Dr. Hardy Woodruff, played by Andrew Garman. We are in the year 1970, and this Christmas is being knowingly hoodwinked into babysitting boarders that haven't been invited home for the holidays. That'd be terrible if you're sort of stuck in, at school and all the rest of the kids go, go home. But anyway, the heating's been turned off, 
There's snow all around. It promises to be a cold and miserable festive season for those remaining at the facility. And all the more so because Hunman intends to continue with regular school hours and with schoolwork while minding the children. And so among them is Angus Tully, Dominic Sesser, senior, has been kicked out of three schools. And he was a last minute in after his mother remarried and her focus is now on her new man, right? The new husband at Angus's expense, something that he's far from happy with because Angus still misses his father. Angus also has frequent run-ins with another who is forced to stay back, Teddy Conce, Brady Hepner, who's not the sharpest tool in the shed, shall we say. Another with them is one of the school's football stars, Jason Smith, Michael Provost, who's laid back and he's in a standoff with his wealthy father. And to co- complete the quintet, two juniors, Korean youngster Yi Yoon Park, Jim Kaplan, who's missing family and friends, and Alex Olliman, Ian Dolly, join the fray. Mind you, due to unforeseen circumstances, the internment of all but Angus at the school is relatively short-lived. So Angus is left with the painstaking task of seeing his way through Christmas with just Mr Hunman and the head cook, Mary Lamb, played by Devine Joy Randolph, for company. Lamb was pregnant when her husband died in a tragic accident before he turned 25. And then recently, she lost her only child, Curtis, a Barton graduate in the Vietnam War. And he wasn't even 20. So he lost both the husband and the son. The only other person occasionally appearing over the holiday season at this school is the friendly cleaner, Danny Nahim Garcia. Mind you, Mr. Hunman also unexpectedly bumps into the headmaster's gregarious personal assistant, Lydia Crane, played by Carrie Preston, who is earning some extra cash at a bar. And over ensuing days, despite their differences, Angus and Mr. Hunman bond, and we learn more about each of the key players. Look, while I was watching it, I I couldn't help but think of the superb Peter Weir-directed Robin Williams' comedic drama, Dead Poet Society. I mean, there are life lessons in the holdovers, both for teacher and student. Love the characterizations led by the incomparable Paul Giamatti, perfectly cast as the cynical teacher and loner with a devastating tongue. Not for naught did he win the Golden Globe. His experience comes to the fore. It's one of the roles of his life. Dominic Sessa, I thought it was excellent as the intelligent but fraught Angus fears the future. This is his film debut and he brings vulnerability to his portrayal. Also hard not to be impressed by the stoicism with which Divine Ran- Joy Randolph imbues Mary Lamb, who has endured so much. Carrie Preston gives the film a boost with her uplifting realisation of the principal's buoyant assistant. Written by David Hemmingson, who cut his teeth as a TV series writer, and it's finally directed by Alexander Payne, who's made some good movies like Sideways and The Descendants. The picture's gentle pace, well, that's established from the get-go, ably supported by lustrous cinematography from Eagle Burled, he did in Bruges, and a, a captivating score by Mark Orton, who did a, 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 who was uh, responsible for the score in Nebraska. So much to appreciate and savour in the holdovers. It's got warmth, it's got humour, it's got heartache too, Peter. It certainly has. It, this is such an impressive film. It, it won me over from the very start. 
when it because the film is set in 1970 and we have um, that sort of impression that the film was made in 1970 mm. with that uh, sort of uh, uh, technical approach which uh, which uh, gets you into the story uh, and into the period the time period the the three actors are absolutely superb I have to say and uh, and the way the story develops and I, I have to say David Hemmingson's screenplay is exemplary in developing these three damaged people's characters and how they interact and how they find something within themselves that they can move on. And and I thought that was just so impressive and it was so beautifully directed as well by Alexander Payne, who really understands uh, human frailty and also humour uh, and how those two can uh, sort of interlace and create really a three-dimensional characters. Beautifully made film, absolutely superb, uh, and I think this film is going to be a really strong dark horse for the Oscars. Mm, I, I don't think it's going to... I think, you know, it's, it's, it's a dark horse, yes. I think it's a dark horse, but I, I don't have any doubt at all that Oppenheimer will win Best Film and Best uh, Director. No question of doubt in my mind whatsoever peter so there you go it's on the record we'll we'll see what what happens in it's in march isn't it the oscars from recollection yes yes yeah. in march uh the holdovers obviously you thought a great deal of it what about you greek you too yeah this is a good film i think this for my best film of the year so far went but only only january but that's beside the point um i thought it was a really well film and the character of hunnam suits paul giamatti's screen persona, that curmudgeonly um, character down to the ground there. He plays it really well. And I thought this is Alexander Payne's probably best film since Sideways, actually. And as Peter mentioned, it does capture that early 70s aesthetic, the look and feel of it, um, even with the use of the old Universal logo at the start, opening the film. Um, and it sort of has that same feel as some of those... Um, Films from some of those maverick directors of the 70s like Hal Ashby and that. And I thought the cinematographer, Edgel Bild, did a great job um, of recreating that look with the cinematography there. Um, Hemmingson's script, I thought, was well written, articulate, and the dialogue zings, and it has a general pace which suits the material there, a deft mix of warmth, humour and pathos, and pain maintains a delicate balance between the comedy and the drama here with lots of insight into the characters. Um, and script, the script peels away these layers of the three main characters, making them more sympathetic, more three-dimensional, more realistic and more credible, I thought, was really done as you learn their backstories. And there's great chemistry between the three, three leads, I thought, that brings the film alive. Um, Marty's cast in a role that plays for his strengths, and I think he's one of his strongest performances for some time, as a subtle and nu nuanced reading in a character. Um, just as superb as the re rebellious Angus, he brings a sense of entitlement and wounded vanity to his performance. And Randolph, I thought, gave her um, character a touch of compassion and resuming resentment. And it just looks good on the film, on the screen. It's a great little film. Mm. Well, every every one of us has praised it for good reason. And Giamatti, Paul Giamatti certainly leads from the front, but it's not just his performance that stands out. There, there are quite a number here. And it's a really, really strong script. I think you're you're going to highball this one, Peter. I so let's start let's start with you highballing it. Go for it. 
<laughs> and I, I do want to add the BAFTA nominations also indicate yeah. the uh, holdovers is very well in favour. Um, so look out. I think this film is going to sneak up on people. Um, uh, very, very impressive film. 10 out of 10 from me. Oh, my golly. Yeah, I knew you were going to... You, you, you'd praised it much more than any film that you've done in recent times. So, yeah, well, okay, I, I'm not there. What about you, Greg? I gave it eight, eight, and, eight and a half. You gave it eight and a half, and I'm lowballing it. I'm giving it an eight. So, you know, we're all – but they're, they're, they're really good marks, folks. So, you know, you really do need to go along and see the holdovers, holdovers if you haven't done so already. You're on Jair 88FM, and we should be talking about a movie which – I didn't know this story. The Iron Claw, MA rated 132 minutes, based on the true story. A loving family torn apart by a father's win-at-any-cost mentality. Fritz von Erich, played by Holt McElhaney, a rising star of the wrestling circuit, but he did not get the chance to be a world champion. Still, it is what continues to drive him and an attitude that he imbues in his son's. Now, he's married to Doris, Maura Tierney. His mantra is, if you are the toughest, strongest, and most successful, nothing can ever hurt you. He and Doris, they've had five boys, but the eldest, Jack Jr., died when he was just five and a half. And now the other four, Kevin, played by Zac Efron, David, Harris Dickinson, Kerry, Jeremy Allen White, and Mike, Stanley Simons, are destined to follow in Dad's footsteps as wrestlers. Mind you, the end goal is for them to go one better than Fritz by claiming a world championship belt. Kevin, while he's top of the heap in Texas, steps into the ring against the reigning world champion in a non-title fight and the sparks fly. And it looks like he's about to get his shot at the really big time soon. But that's not how events pan out. In fact, it's the younger sibling, David, that moves ahead of him in the pecking order. In the meantime, Kevin meets and later marries down-to-earth Pam, Lily James. Kevin has already raised with Pam what's known as the family curse, which she immediately dismisses. Despite that, tragedy is about to befall the clan. Still, Father Fritz presses on with his ambitions. Written and directed by Sean Durkin, who was responsible for Martha, Mace, Marcy, May, Marlene, I Claw, well, I found hard to watch as... as as something meant to be positive goes so pear-shaped. Dad's ambition becomes this ever-tightening noose around the family's neck. Kevin and his bros are forever trying to please their dad. But as far as father's concerned, nothing but total dedication to the cause is acceptable. And while he's hardly sympathetic, Hold McElhaney impresses with his intense characterization of a man that refuses to be swayed from his path. And in one of the roles of his career... And it really is. Zac Efron brings sensitivity and heartache to his persona. In fact, each of the brothers has vulnerabilities and pitfalls. Lily James, warm and caring as Kevin's grounded wife. Doris is harder to read as Fritz's God-fearing wife, who sticks by her husband despite the torment that she experiences. And Maura Tierney channels that dichotomy. The movie's title, The Iron Claw, is drawn from Fritz's signature move in The Ring, The Dad. Although, given what goes down, perhaps it should, be, should have been called the Iron Fist. That would have been more apt. It's tough. It's unrelenting. This one grips. The Iron Claw grips and grips hard. How's that for a, um, yeah, one of your dad jokes? 
Great. You, you got him in hand, I think, here. Thank you. What did you think of it? Uh, this is a, an, an interesting story again. I, I hadn't heard of this. I'm not, not that I'm a big fan of wrestling. No, that's what I was saying. Exactly. Uh, why have we heard of this? Yeah, but uh, no, a couple of my friends have, when I mentioned this at the pub on um, Thursday night, they, one of them knew about the Von Eric families and oh. they did. So there you go. Um, but you, you, I'm right. This is um, one of Zach Efron's best roles. He's sort of taken that path to move on from being a pinup idol and a poster boy and teen idol to picking some more gritty roles that show him as a good actor there. And I'm surprised that it's actually his own muscles there. He built up and bulked up. So yeah. Looks amazing. Yeah. yeah frightening. Frightening intense there. And the wrestling scenes have such power there. Surprise, Not surprising that some of these wrestlers do get really seriously injured, even though the bouts are stage managed to within an inch of their life there. But this is a really tragic story, what happened to the... Um, all the brothers and, and the sons of his family there. And Holt McCannany, who's done some good stuff in the past, I think this is the role of his career there as a driven father who didn't quite achieve the top in his chosen sport and is now trying to achieve it through his sons there. I thought this was a really good story there, especially with such power and passion by Sean Durkin. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, d- did, it, did it grip you, Peter? The Iron Claw gripped me. Yes, it did. <laughs> it uh, Look, uh, this is a, a melancholic film from the outset. It's all about uh, uh, this family and it's the tragedy that uh, has befallen them and the curse or whatever that they're supposed to have. But it's, uh, even though it's sort of about wrestling and about the sport and, and uh, a lot of well-choreographed uh, sort of sequences of wrestling, even though um, there was a, a lot of jokes going around that the whole thing was so carefully stage managed that it was uh, uh, scripted almost. Um, but uh, what is so interesting about this film is about the family dynamic, about the uh, macho uh, treatment of the boys by their father, uh, of this whole notion of having to win to be seen as being important in the family. Um, all of that dynamic and the way the mother sort of supports that, uh, which I thought was very interesting yes. uh, indeed in terms of the way the the whole family storyline dynamic develops. Um, as seen through the eyes of Zac Efron's character, it is uh, a nicely melancholic-tuned film. It's um, Sean Durkin has done such a good job of telling us a tragedy, an American tragedy almost, uh, in terms of what happened to these uh, men and uh, and the family and uh, and the consequences of the way they were treated. Um, a, a really nicely tooled film. I, I was quite impressed. Yeah, there's there's a lot of impressive elements to it, and I agree with Greg that I mean, yeah, I used to watch champ, World Championship Wrestling. We had a television, you know, with the old style TV in the hall as people first entered our home, and my brother and I were sitting there on very small chairs and. Then we used to practice some of the manoeuvres. Uh, that doesn't surprise you at all, does it, Greg? No. No. And remember Jack Little? Did you ever watch Jack? Yes. Yeah. There you go, Peter. And uh, I, 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 now I'm actually picturing his voice in my mind. It, it was quite. Um, we were of a certain age, and uh, it was very influential. Because uh, now, Peter. Knowing that you love sport as much as you do, you established that last week. Yes. Um, did you did you also watch World of Sport when you were watching? Because it was on 
wrestling was on around about the same time from recollection. So then did you stay on and watch World of Sport? Uh, to some extent I did because it was oh. uh, occasionally funny. But I, I liked the, the World Championship Wrestling because that whole thing was just a, a comedic nightmare. Yeah. It was just so hilarious and so stupid at times that I thought it was a comedy show. Did you, do you remember some of the names? Spiros Ari and I remember. Yes. Mario yes. Milano. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What else? Come on, guys. This is a trip down memory lane. They were the Wasn't two. Chief, Indian Chief character? Yes. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, you're right. Um, oh, goodness. There were such because, bizarre names. Because, I mean, it's funny. If, if I was, in terms of world wrestling, if there's one name that, again, I don't think I ever saw him, Hulk Hogan stands out. But I, we, we, that was not in our era, was it? Or was it? But it wasn't shown it was on the. Eighties. It was more eighties, wasn't it? Yeah, that's yeah, uh, that's right. It, it's it. Don't forget the Rock stand out as a wrestler too. That's Mind true. Him. Yeah, I I still think it's and yeah. Stone Cold Steve Austin. Yeah, and again, but these were not not people that we saw on the TV screens no. when you know in the what was it seventies or or sixties. No, it it wasn't. Anyway, look, let's get to some scores for the Iron Claw. Um, look, I'll start this one off. It's M rated, sorry, M A rated with very good reason. It's 132 minutes in duration. I'm going to give it a seven and a half. Greg, uh, six and a half. Okay, and Peter, I was actually quite impressed by the film. Eight out of ten. There you go. Twice. Oh my golly, Peter, are you turning over a new leaf at the end of the program? Are you going to be nice to films sometimes? Uh, only when they deserve it. Ah, very good. Well, it is awards season. There's all sorts of other. You know, nominations, BAFTAs, you've already mentioned, and and uh, critics awards, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But uh, I find it interesting that the the films that I really regard very highly, I've already often mentioned Oppenheimer, but also Poor Things. They're the films that seem to be doing particularly well. Anyway, yeah. let's the Oscar nominations. I should say will be out on January twenty fourth. Lovely. Peter, thank you. Greg, farewell and thank you too. And you've been listening to First on Film and Entertainment. Do it all again in seven days.